Greetings! You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or women in sport through a conversation about who they are and all the terrific work they're doing. Today, I am speaking to a dynamic, exciting coach we all should watch going forward. She is Bianca Smith, who is currently with the Red Sox organization as a minor league coach. This is her first full-time coaching job, so we talk about not having to have a second job and what a difference that makes. Her coaching philosophy, keeping in contact with mentors, former bosses, former players, and the other women coaching in baseball. And since it's the 50th anniversary of Title IX, we also get into that. Related to Title IX, in my mind, is how Bianca got into baseball. It turns out softball never crossed her mind because she has always loved baseball and was a fan. This is how it should be. Of course, that career choice should be open and available to her. What I love about this episode is the advice, words of wisdom, and the stories Bianca shares about working hard in a field she loves and wants to succeed in. Like so many of the conversations on Hear Her Sports, yes, it's sports-related, but can apply outside of sports just as well. Bianca even says as much. I also absolutely loved hearing details about baseball strategy. Before we get going, just a reminder that if you aren't a newsletter subscriber, check it out. Between episodes, I write a few words about issues in sports, the podcast, and how to watch women's sports or follow along in other ways. Lots of listeners are reading each week, so join us there. Sign up at hearhersports.com. And now, let's get to it and meet Bianca. 2022 is Bianca Smith's second season as a minor league coach with the Boston Red Sox. Prior to being with the Red Sox, she was an assistant athletic director and assistant baseball coach slash hitting coordinator at Carroll University. Bianca also coached at Case Western Reserve University, where she earned her dual JD MBA and at the University of Dallas. She also worked in baseball operations in the front offices of the Texas Rangers, the Cincinnati Reds, and Major League Baseball's Commissioner's Office. Bianca graduated from Dartmouth College in 2012, where she played varsity softball and club baseball. It is fantastic to have her here. Welcome, Bianca. It's, I don't know, I'm so excited to have you here. It's a real treat. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Can you start by telling me a little bit more about what your title means? I understand that in 2022, you have a new position as full-time coach for the Florida Complex League. And I just would like an explanation of what that actually entails and so what you're going to be doing this season. Yeah, so um, really the only new part about it is the fact that I'm full-time. I was technically part-time last year, even though the hours didn't reflect that. (laughs) And really, it's just there's more responsibility this year. Uh, Getting titled as just minor league coach just gives me an opportunity to do more than just one area. So say if I'd been a hitting coach, my responsibilities would have been pretty much just hitting. Same thing with pitching coach. As minor league coach, I still get to work with the hitters. So I kind of have my core group that I work with primarily. But I'm also in charge of outfield. I'm in charge of base running. I score our games during the game. So keeping track of, you know, pitch count, helping out the pitching coaches with that, keeping track of defensive positioning, spray charts, providing that for all of the players. I help our manager with the game reports at the end of the day, also help with scheduling. 
I kind of act as bench coach. I've actually had a couple of times where I've gotten to be the acting manager for games. Oh, cool. And I'll have that opportunity when the regular season starts as well. If our manager is busy with something, I'm pretty much the next person in line to take charge of the team if necessary. So I've gotten to coach third several times. So like I said, really, the title is just an open-ended way of letting me do as much as I want. And I've gotten a chance to just really delve deep and have more of a leadership role with the team. It sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it, it is It is a lot. I definitely admit there are times where I can't believe I'm doing everything, especially if our manager is busy during games. I take his roles on top of mine. So he does, you know, catching or if we have like any bunting, I'm also in charge of kind of planning that. But he's in charge of our catchers. So if he's gone, I do that section of the game report as well. I keep track of that. I keep track of stolen bases. I keep track of pop time, uh, pickoffs, like stuff like that. So it is definitely a lot, hence why my schedule can get crazy. But it's a lot of fun. The Red Sox know, I mean, my goal is to manage a team. So getting an opportunity to almost do that without really having the pressure just yet is a really, really cool, really good experience. Can you familiarize me with what players are actually down there and, you know, who you're working with and what the goals for those players are? I mean, is it the expectation that they move up? I'm not very familiar with the minor leagues and how that all works and like what that complex down there is about. Yeah, so our complex league, uh, right now we're finishing up extended spring training. So our official season doesn't start until Monday, June 6th. And that's when the actual like Florida complex league starts. But the players we have down here are primarily players that are coming from our Dominican Academy. So for a lot of them, this is their first year in the States. This is their first year in you know, professional baseball here. A lot of these guys, you know, 18, 19 20 years old. We've got a couple of guys who were probably drafted last year. Um, so we'll have that as well. Once the draft happens, we'll have nearly all of the draft guys will start here in Florida. Uh, a couple of college guys will probably get moved up after a couple of weeks and the high school guys might stay here for the rest of the season, depending on what we need at our low A level. But yeah, the expectation and the goal is to move these guys to the, our next level to low A. And then we'll also get rehabbing guys here. So, oh, okay. Like we've got from low A to the major leagues guys who will start their rehab with us. So we actually have quite a few, you know, high A, double A, triple A, even a couple of major league pitchers down here who are rehabbing while they're on the IL. They'll pitch for a while here for depending on what their injury is, what they're recovering from. And then they'll go back to their initial team or continue to move their way up. So like last year we had Chris Sale pitching for us for a couple of games before he went back to Boston. So it's it's definitely a variety of guys that are down here. And especially for that group of guys coming from the Dominican Republic, I mean, this is all new. I think the, the culture is more of a change than anything. A lot of these guys coming from the academy, they they were at the academy for a year, two years. I mean, these guys can sign at 16. They'll be there for two years before they come to us. So. The culture and being in the States is new. Mm -hmm. The team, our structure, the way we coach things, the way we do things shouldn't be new. They are doing the same things at the, at the academy that 
we do here. I mean, with the help of our coordinators throughout the entire system, our coordinators who run different areas will go to all of the affiliates, will go to the academy and kind of make sure that everything being implemented is the same throughout the entire system. So that way, when guys do get here, at least that's not different. They already know what our expectations are and they can just kind of jump in. Do you have a usual day? I mean, can you describe what your day-to-day -day is like? <laughs> yeah, it depends on if we're home, if we're away, if sure. it's a camp day, if there's a hurricane. <laughs> so, uh, we are now approaching hurricane season, so that always makes it fun when we're taking a look at the weather and going, well, 90% chance of rain today. Let's see how many innings we can get in. Right. But um, away game isn't too different. It just depends on how far away we're going. But typical home game. I'll leave the hotel at 6.30, get to the complex, 6.45, 6.50, uh, prepare for the game. So like I said, spray charts, taking a look at who the pitchers are, taking a look at our lineup. If I'm in charge that day, I make the lineup the night before, post that on the board, make sure the schedule's up. Uh, we have our staff meeting, 7.50. Our hitters are supposed to start in the cage at 8.30, but we always have a group of guys that come in at around 8.10 instead. So we get to sit for about five to 10 minutes and just kind of talk about what we might want to work on or, you know, just kind of have a little bit of fun in the conference room, go work with our hitters from about eight ten to nine 30. I'll work with the outfielders as well towards the end of that, do some kind of individualized small group stuff. After that, you know, we'll stretch, we'll throw some days we do base running. Some days we might do bunting and then, um, We'll go into individual defense, so I'll work with the outfielders again, team fundamentals. We'll either do a team thing or I'll just have the outfielders for a little bit longer. Batting practice, lunch, and then game at noon. After the game, go back in, work on the game report with our, uh, with our manager, prepare the schedule for the next day, line up for the next day, and then come back to the hotel. And if it's been a good day, I'm at the hotel by 5 o'clock. <laughs> if it's been a long day. I've been at the complex until about 6, 6.30 before I leave again. Yeah. Wow. And then go home and do it all over the next day. And you said that you're in a hotel. So you're living right now in a hotel. Are you cooking? Like, what's that all like? Yeah. So last year I was in an apartment, but anybody in this industry or anybody who's ever done a short-term lease knows how annoying that is. So I did not want to do a short-term lease again. So I'm staying in the team hotel. I have a mini fridge and a microwave. So if it's not microwaved, I door dash. <laughs> uh, we do get fed breakfast and lunch at the complex. So I don't have to worry about that. But like off day, yeah, I'll either door dash or, uh, you know, pop in like mac and cheese or ramen or something. Maybe a Hot Pocket if I can fit it in the small freezer. But um, thankfully, most of my food does come from the complex when I have time to eat. <laughs> and I often ask guests, you know, like what they're doing to keep physically active. It sounds like your entire day you're running around. Oh, yeah. It's uh, I don't have my phone in my pocket during games, which is kind of a shame. We are on the third base side and most games I coach first. So I have to run to the first base side and I don't go until after the catcher throws down the ball. So at that point, I'm like sprinting. And the only reason why I don't have my phone in my pocket is because if guys get to first, I hold all their stuff and I don't have room if I have my phone. But without my phone during those three hours, I still record six to 7,000 steps. So if you're including the game, wow. I'm probably averaging 10 to 11,000 steps a day. And on top of that, you know, working in the cages, we're flipping, we're throwing, I throw batting practice. 
I try to weightlift on my own, but I get so tired sometimes I don't. But that is that is my cardio. And I've noticed from last year running to first, I am no longer out of breath, like at all. Like this is an easy sprint for me doing this eight to nine times a game. Right, right. So I'm actually, I, I might be in better shape now than I was as a college athlete. That's excellent. So this is your second season with the Red Sox. What has been different or what are you focusing on that's different? I mean, how are you taking what you learned from last year and being able to apply it for what's going to happen this whole season? Yeah, so biggest difference is, like I said, just having more of a leadership position. It helps that the majority of our coaching staff came back from last year. There's only one guy who didn't, uh, who's not back with us in Florida. He's at AA in Portland now. So we have one new coach, but everybody else is back. And last year, it was all of our first year in that role. So we were learning each other and learning the role and learning the players. Now that we've already kind of established our roles with within our staff, um, it's a lot easier now because really we can just focus on the players and building off of what we did last year, uh, especially with some of the players who might be back from last year. So for me, it's um, last year I was still in charge of outfield. I was still in charge of base running, but I'm a lot more confident in the things that I bring to the team. And like I said, it helps that a lot of these players um, we either had last year or I got to work with during our instructional league in October. So there were only a few players that I hadn't actually met yet. So I've already established some relationship with these guys. And there's already a trust there. Like they trust that I know what I'm doing. They know what my role is. I mean, I might have some hitters, yes, who I don't necessarily work with. So they're going to go to the hitting coach that they work with. But if they're in outfield, they'll come to me with outfield questions. They'll come to me with base running questions. They'll come to me with bunting. Like they know what my role is. And for me, it's just, again, building off of that and then learning how to be more of a leader, you know, stepping up in different areas instead of just necessarily asking, hey, why don't we try this, taking the initiative and just going to our manager and say, hey, I think we need to work on this or let's do this this day. It's less of questioning and more of, hey, I'm just going to step up and we're going to work on this. And our manager is all for it. He's got no problem with us just kind of jumping in. If we have anything that we need to work on, he trusts us with that. So that helps. But yeah, it really is just being more of a leader this year. And I know our players have definitely started to notice this because I'm usually the person they come to if our manager isn't available. Did you do anything between seasons to sort of prep you or, I, I, I don't know, reading or studying or I don't know what it would be, but how did you prep for this season? Always. Um, I mean, this offseason, I got to do more just because this is the first time I've had an offseason. Uh, when you're working in college ball, you're busy year round, but you know, getting to do conventions. Biggest one is the American Baseball Coaches Association, getting to the, go to that convention and listen to speakers I participated in a couple others where I actually spoke, went to another hitting convention. And it's one of the great things about the Red Sox is they expect coaches to go to at least one convention during the offseason and they pay for it. They pay for a flight, they pay for our hotel, they pay for the registration. And then they expect us to come back and share the information that we learned. So preparing that way, and then even just kind of doing a self-evaluation and going over what I did last season and thinking, okay, how do I want to get better? How do I want to help these guys get better? What could I do better at? And we've done that this year as well, where we've actually just asked players directly, 
players that are currently down here and players we had last year, I've gotten to ask, hey, what do you think we could have done better last year? How could we help you be more prepared to move to the next level? So it's not necessarily just what can we teach you baseball-wise, but what else can we do, whether it's mentally, whether it's off the field, like what else can we do to help you prepare to get there? Because that's our goal. That's our job. It doesn't really matter what we do. Like it matters if it actually helps them. So that's really how I prepare myself was just continue learning and then getting feedback from players. What exciting things have you learned? Like what's happening new in baseball or is anything happening new in baseball? Well, the uh, new rules are certainly interesting. Um, that's probably the hardest part is just adjusting to new rules and figuring out how, how that's going to help us. Um, but I mean, there's, it, that's a hard question to answer because there's always something new uh, to work on. And that's because while this is a team sport, it is still a very individualized sport and every player is different. So what works for one player isn't necessarily going to work for the other. And the key is learning I mean, what will actually work for them and then figuring that out. And some of that has nothing to do with preparation. You could know as much as you can about hitting, but one cue isn't going to work for one player where it might work for the other. And now you have to figure out, okay, how am I going to tell this player the exact same thing as the other player, but get him to understand what I mean? And there's not a lot of preparation really that you could do ahead of time. You just have to get to know the player and build that relationship and just build that trust that you will eventually figure out what's the best way to coach him, what's the best way to talk to him. You talked about the individuality of all the players and how you had to sort of, I mean, I'm not going to say work on the fly, but sort of work on the fly. Do you have maybe grounding principles that sort of guide you when you're working with players that direct how you're going to figure out how to work with them? Yeah. I mean, for me, my biggest philosophy is really just yeah, building that relationship first, building up the trust. I've had times where I'll work with a player for over a month and not mention baseball at all. Like nothing about their swing, nothing about fielding. It's just asking about them, asking about their background, asking about family, siblings, just getting to know them before they finally ask me, okay, what do you see? And then finally getting to work with them. So a lot of guys, like I, I just have this general philosophy. I'm not going to jump in and immediately give instruction to a player that I don't know well. And even the players here, like I said, I have my core group who I typically see every day. I've gotten to know them and probably about half of them I worked with last year too. So this year I was able to just jump in and start working with them, you know, asking, hey, what did you do during the offseason? What are you working on? That's one of the benefits of having the second year now is since I did work with about half of our players from last year. I also kept in touch with a lot of players during the offseason. So it wasn't like out of sight, out of mind. Um, them having that trust that they know I'm truly in it for them and I truly want to just help them and work with them. The ones that were newer who I haven't worked with yet took a little bit longer. I just had to, again, get to know them, build that trust, and also figure out what they're working on. I mean, I could easily say, hey, this is, you know, let's try to work on this, but they don't want to work on that right now. They're trying to figure out how to, you know, adjust their bat path. Whereas I might think that they need to work on their lower body. And that's great. I like it, it, 
if they need to work on their lower body, it might be a true thing. But if that's not what they want to work on, I can't force them to work on anything. I could tell them anything I want and they could easily go, yeah, no, I don't believe that or I don't want to work on that. There's not much I could do about that. That's where that trust and building the relationship comes in. And that's why I usually wait before giving instruction. Like I figure out that guys, okay, they're ready and willing to listen. Then guys will be willing to actually try something out, even if it doesn't work immediately. So that's one of them. And the second one is really just being honest about everything. There will be times where I'll admit, hey, we're good. let's try this. It might not work. If it doesn't, we'll try something else. If a guy's swing looks bad, the ones who work with me the most, they know I'll, I will tell them if they look bad. It could be a great hit off the bat, but I'd be like, hey, that's a, that was a terrible swing. Like they know I'm not going to just cookie cut and be, oh, yeah, you know, that was that was good. It was OK. I will tell them honestly if they look bad or not. And a lot of guys appreciate that because that's actually how you get better. It's not by us you know, making them feel good or making them hear what they want to hear. It's getting them to hear what they need to hear. How did you figure all that out? I mean, how did you figure out coaching was for you? How did you learn about coaching? How did you make this transition from being an athlete yourself to wanting to get more into sort of the coaching managerial roles? Well, I should have realized when I was in grad school and I would purposely go from the law school to our field two hours before practice just to do my homework in the outfield. I should have known that I wanted to be on the field then. Like I would take my shoes off, take my laptop out into the outfield, take my books and just sit there and do homework because I just loved being at the field that much. But I was so focused on being in the front office because that's what I told everybody. That's what everybody expected me to do, especially doing two graduate degrees. I still have players who are like, you would be great in the front office. And I keep telling them, stop saying that. I don't even want people thinking that because I don't want to be in the front office anymore. Um, but it really hit me after doing two internships, one in the front office with the Rangers and one in the commissioner's office, where I realized like I didn't really enjoy going into work. I mean, I still loved baseball. I loved the sport, but I wanted to be on the field. I wanted to be working with players. I wanted to see them get better. But I also missed the strategy of the game. I mean, as much as I love working with players, like player development side and helping them get better, I love seeing them succeed. I mean, first time you're, you're working with a player and you get to see like their first home run or that one you know, play that they've been trying to make and they just couldn't quite get their glove work um, right and they finally make it. That look on their face is awesome. But there's also the strategy. I mean, this comes from just being an athlete. Every athlete, I mean, you're competitive. Like, I want to win. And that's part of the fun for me. Like, I grew up in a competitive household. We were, I was always competing with my siblings. My parents would, my dad would instigate you know, arguments and fights between me and my siblings <laughs> and like cheer us on. And that's just, that's just how we are. We were, and we still are. So that was kind of an indicator for me as well. I mean, yes, when you're working in the front office, you still get to win because it's your team, but I wanted to be in the trenches, in the dugout, truly, you know, trying to win a game with these guys. So that's what led me to coaching when, um, yeah, when I realized I missed being on the field and then the first time I truly got a chance to work with a player and it wasn't even with the game, it was just player development, just, you know, working at practice, working out, doing little workouts. First time I did that, I loved it. 
And that's really when it hit me. I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I got to coach. I got to figure out a way to do this full time. When was that? When th that first time that you were working on the field with a player? Um, honestly, it was grad school. I mean, I was primarily in the dugout doing stats and helping out more with practices. But pretty much when the coaches started to trust me to evaluate the outfielders, getting to throw batting practice, getting to run drills, I've really loved that. But the first time that I was truly in charge of a practice was actually when um, I was with the I was back with the Rangers after the commissioner's office. So the fall of 2018, working at, at our youth academy. And um, that was the first time where I was the only coach with a group of girls. And that was the first time that I got to kind of plan, okay, what are we going to do? And I actually had to run practice. And that's really when it hit me. Okay, yeah, I love doing this. Yeah, it was, it was just a lot of fun for me. And uh, being able to do that on top of just knowing that if I get to do this full time, I still have the games. I still get to have that competitive atmosphere where I get to help players win a championship. That was even more of a drive. It's so fun hearing people who immediately know, you know, like that this thing is right, like you did with the coaching. But also it sounds like you really took to it. I mean, what you're talking about sounds so sophisticated and really it hasn't been that long since you've started coaching. Yeah. I mean, I, I say that I technically started coaching in 15, which is when I started helping out on the field with uh, our players at Case Western. But the, yeah, the first time I truly got to really get ingrained in coaching was 18. Um, before that, it was primarily baseball ops, you know, the typical run the team, do the stats, all of the other work that nobody really thinks about off the field. Not actually, not many people realize my first coaching role actually came when I was 14. And um, I always forget about it, too, because I just don't think about it. But my mom was the head coach of my sister's youth softball team. And she had me help out as an assistant coach. And I actually did that for two seasons. I even coached third. Oh, wow. Um, and like I said, I just completely forget about it. So I actually, my, like I said, my first coaching role was really when I was 14. But it didn't hit me then. Like, I didn't even think I wanted to be in sports back then. I still wanted to be a veterinarian. So I don't quite consider that like my first real coaching experience because it wasn't a turning point for me. It was more, it was one of those, my mom dragged me along with her and made me coach with her. Right. But the seeds were planted for sure. Yeah. Well, your long-term goal, as you mentioned, is to run a professional team, men's baseball team. How do you get there? Same way that I got this job, hard work, persistence, being the best coach that I can be, just showing that I know what I'm talking about, showing that I know what I'm doing, that I can handle it. And um, yeah, I mean, persistence is probably the biggest thing. I mean, the, the number of, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a lot of people, but I mean, just, I definitely had people who had their doubts, didn't think I'd be hired as a coach because I was a woman. Or, um, like, I doubted myself. I mean, I didn't, I really didn't play softball that long. I didn't play baseball that long at all. I followed the game for sure. I'm more of a student of a game than an athlete. I've definitely had those doubts as well, but it's just continuing to keep pushing, doing all the right things, 
and just doing everything I can in the role that I'm at. I mean, I can certainly focus on the future. I think it's crazy not to, but it's also focusing on what I'm doing right now. Like as much as, yes, I, I want to manage a team in the future. I also have a role now and my job now is to help these guys get better, help them, you know, get to the next level. And then, you know, also hopefully win a championship down here. I mean, we do have championships at the rookie level. So it's, it's, it's a mixture of preparing for that next job and just being available and being ready. And at the same time, being focused on this current job and doing whatever you can in this job, not just to do your job, but to help out everybody else. Because if I only did what like my expectations were or what the expectations of the team was in any job that I've had, I never would have gotten where I am now. I, I always do more than what I'm expected to do. If there's something that I know I can do, I'm going to jump in until somebody tells me not to. I was going to ask you if you had any advice for young people who were interested in getting into coaching and it, you just gave it, I think. Yeah, no, that's, that's probably besides don't give up because it's a very hard, grueling position. There's a lot of sacrifice. I mean, there's, um, there was a point where I was at Carroll that one of my brothers was getting married and I had just been accepted into the NCAA Women's Coaches Academy that ran at the same time as his wedding. And I told him, hey, I can leave a little bit early, but I'm still going to be late to your wedding. And thankfully, this, is the, this was the soccer player. So he immediately was like, oh, no, congratulations. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. If we have to start later, we can. So thankfully, my family gets it, but not every family, not everybody's going to understand the sacrifice it takes to do this. And like I, my permanent address is my parents' house. I don't I pretty much plan on living in a hotel for the rest of my career if I can. And I thankfully can do this because I mean I don't have you know kids, I don't have a spouse, I've got parents who are incredibly supportive, siblings who are supportive. So yeah, that's one of my advices. Like it's just it's a hard job, so don't give up if it's something you really want to do. But yeah, back to what you were saying before, do more than what you're expected. And it's not just with coaching, it's with any job. The ones who get ahead. And the ones who truly succeed at what they want to do are the ones who do more than what they're asked. It, it should be a natural thing, too. Like, you don't want it to be forced. You're only doing it so you can get ahead. For me, yes, it helps. But my main motivation for doing more than what I'm asked is because it actually helps our team. It helps our staff. Like, even if it's something as little as I'll, you know, pick up balls in somebody else's cage not because I'm trying to look good, but because they're busy doing something else. Like If they're busy, I'm going to help out wherever I can. And that's just always been my motivation. And that's part of you know being a former athlete. Like, what can you do to help the team? What can you do to help the staff? What more can you do? One of my goals when I was at Case Western, and one of the reasons why I took on so many roles as the director of baseball operations was because I told myself my first year, what can I do? So the coaches only have to worry about coaching. So they don't have to worry about, you know, social media or meals or parents or travel or any of that stuff. All they have to do is worry about coaching these guys on the field. What can I do to make that job easier for them? And that's always been my motivation going forward with any job is what can I do to help out the rest of our staff? What can I do to help out our manager? so he can just focus on this part of his job? What can I do to help out our hitting coaches so they only have to focus on hitting? 
And it could be little things, but it makes a difference. You've mentioned your family a couple times. What kind of sports did you do as a kid? And you described a little bit about being in a very competitive family. Describe that maybe more. Like, I mean, I think it's pretty astounding that all of you are so sporty and it's great. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you grow up with um, both my parents and both my step parents all played sports growing up and uh, did some kind of sport in college. So it's a it's definitely a given. Our family, we revolve around sports. But uh, growing up, so I primarily played soccer and I was a dancer. No, oh. so I did ballet, tap, jazz and hip hop from the time I was maybe five until 17. I think I danced and then I did soccer from the time I was four until I was 13 and then started playing softball then. Softball was my backup sport actually. My mom told me I wasn't going to make my high school soccer team so I needed a backup sport. She was right. I got cut two days into the school year because I hate running <laughs> which is a terrible <laughs> feature for a soccer player. Yep. <laughs> I was a defender. I was on a team that was so good that I never had to run. All I had to do was wait for the ball to get to me. I would kick it up to our forwards, sit back down, and start picking flowers again. <laughs> so I never had to run. That's um, awesome. Which is even better because I became an outfielder. So I saw to run in softball, just not as much. And then I became a pinch runner. So I'm like, that's really all I did. That was my strength for sure. Was I was a contact hitter and I had speed. So I got on with a lot of infield hits. Stole bases. But yeah, so primarily soccer, dance. I did karate for a while. I did get to orange belt before I had to choose between karate and dance. Did softball in high school. In college, I played varsity softball, club baseball, and I was a cheerleader. And I was actually a cheerleader all four years. And I only played softball and baseball my last two years. That's usually my fun fact for people. They never expect to hear that I was a cheerleader. Yeah. Especially the ones who know me really well. They're like, there's... No way, you're not peppy enough. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm surprised by the dance. I hadn't heard that. But that certainly explains some, some of the body awareness. Dancers have incredible body awareness. It certainly helps. And um, yeah, I, I'm, now that I think about it, yeah, I really haven't brought it up much. The focus has always been on, um, you know, whether I played softball or baseball. And of course, I bring in soccer. One, because I loved playing soccer. But also having a brother who's a professional soccer player, it's usually a good segue. But I never really thought about bringing up the fact that I, I danced longer than anything else that I ever did. Yeah, I guess since I danced for 12 years, it's a, that was a pretty big thing for me growing up because my mom was also a dancer. She did that in college. She actually founded one of the dance clubs there. We got to dance together my last two years of high school. We were part of the same group. And we got to do recitals together, which was awesome. And she was a great dancer. I wish I'd been as athletic as her. But uh, yeah, growing up in a family, like I said, all of my siblings, they played sports. My mom once told me I was the least athletic of all of my siblings. I'm the oldest <laughs> of five. So imagine that. And I try to tell people, well, imagine that. I grew up playing, what, five sports, if you include dance. And I was the least athletic of my siblings. Wow. Wow. So how did your mom get so into sports? I mean, I, I'm I'm going to ask you a question about Title IX since, you know, like we're approaching the anniversary of Title IX. But was she pre-Title IX? And how did she get so involved in sports? Uh, I actually, I have no idea. I never asked her. 
All I know is she grew up playing sports as well. I mean, she did volleyball, softball, dance, basketball, track. I'm not really sure if there are any others. I mean, I know she was a baseball fan. She's the one who introduced me to the game in the first place. Wasn't she your strategy guru? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I learned strategy from her. She was at least as far as those who were closest to me in the family, like immediate family and those who I talked to the most, she was really the biggest baseball fan. So I would talk strategy with her. That's how I learned a lot of it. And then really just watching the sport. But she was probably the only one besides my sister who'd be willing to watch a game on TV, but only if it was her team. Otherwise, I mean, it was a chore just to get my dad to watch the World Series with me sometimes. What do you like best about baseball? The strategy. Hmm. And when I say the strategy, it's because growing up, one of the things like it's if you watch baseball, I don't think there's any other sport where you're, you're going to find more body types than anywhere else. The fact that you don't have to be the most athletic, you don't have to be the fastest, you don't have to be the strongest. If you truly understand the game, you understand the strategy and you know your strengths you can make it work. And that's one of the things that, you know, we try to instill with players too. I mean, we're in a day and age where you know, everybody wants to see home runs. Everybody wants to hit home runs. And I get that, you know, especially you get to arbitration. That's what gets, that's what pays is home runs. But not everybody is a home run hitter. So if you want to have a long career, what do you do? You figure out your strengths. You figure out how you provide value to the team. And you build off of that. Like I said, I was, I was not a power hitter at all. I have very, like, very low upper body strength. I mean, and this probably comes from soccer and dance. I mean, my, I've got strong legs. I'm fast. I'm not as fast as I used to, but the fact that I knew I had speed, I didn't strike out very often. I had a quick reaction time. Not the best depth perception, but I could react quick enough that I can at least make contact with the ball, get on base, steal second. I've still, I stole third a couple of times in high school. And then you're already in a position to, you know, score. So I was always either lead off or second because they knew I was either going to get on or I was going to move the runner over. And while I might not always get on, I always did my job. And that's one of the things that I loved about baseball is that if you just truly understood the game, you don't even have to be the best. You just have to be your best. You just have to find a way to help the team. And that's that's what made me gravitate towards that game is that I felt like anybody could play the game if you knew it well enough and you worked on what your strengths were. Are you able to pass that on to your players? We definitely try. Like I said, it's a little bit harder now because everybody wants to hit home runs. So when you get that one or you know, a couple of players who they're not necessarily you know, power hitters, and trying to convince them that you don't need to just consistently hit home runs to move up. It could be a little hard when that's all they've really known was trying to hit home runs and everybody wants them. But we do try to focus on, hey, this is what you're good at. Focus on this. And there are some players who they get it. Like we do have some players who aren't necessarily power hitters, but they can turn singles into doubles just from their speed. And I've explained that to some college guys. I actually had a college player who 
his first two years, I was only there for his uh, second and third year, but he was so focused on trying to be a power hitter. Like everything is swing. Everything was up. Everything was up. Like he's just trying to hit bombs. And finally I pulled him aside and went, Hey, if you want to play, you need to figure out where you help the team. And I explained it this way where I said, okay, if you've got a guy who consistently hits doubles, meaning like to the fence, legit stand-up doubles versus you who can hit a line drive and then steal second in the next at bat. What's the difference? And he thought about it and went, there really isn't. You're both on second. I'm like, exactly. Yes, home runs are great, but if you can get on base, use your speed to steal first, steal third, or even just get to second. There's a big difference between being on first and being on second when you got a hitter up. As long as you're in scoring position, you're helping the team. You're providing value. And now you're, I mean, your average is going to look better rather than striking out because you're trying to hit home runs. Now you're getting on base. You're stealing bases. You're showing where you help. And like I said, we've got guys who they might hit singles and they turn it into doubles just from their speed or just from good base running. One of the things like I preach, especially down here, is you run hard until the ump says you're out. You run hard until that ball is actually caught because you never know what's going to happen. Even in the majors, guys miss fly balls. What might look like a routine fly ball, they might miss it. And all of a sudden you're at third because you were running hard. That's how you do things right. So for some guys, yeah, it takes a little bit longer before they really trust us and truly believe what we're trying to teach them. Others will get it a little bit sooner, but you just keep at it. One of the things that I really like about what you're talking about is one of my favorite things about team sports in that, you know, you can't have a team of all stars. You know, everybody has their little role and the stars need people that back them up and support them and do other things. And it sounds like that's a lot of what you're doing. It's it's a lot harder in professional baseball because, um, yes, it's a team sport, but it is still pretty individualized because guys do want to move up. Especially the lower you are, the more you want to move up, the more you're focused on kind of, you know, what can I do to make myself look good? But that's one of the things that, you know, I still will tell guys, yes, it's it right now. It is definitely an individualized sport, even in the majors. It's still somewhat individualized. But at the same time, how can you make yourself look good is by helping the team win. Because at the end of the day, especially at the majors, you're trying to win a championship. That's what the goal of the team is. So how do you help the team win championships? It doesn't look good if you're down here hitting home runs, but also striking out just as much. That's not helping the team. That's not going to help. Like that doesn't help anybody, especially if it's just solo shots. No, when you're in a specific situation, you make yourself look good by helping the team win. So it's, it's a mixture of, you know, being individualized and you know, trying to, yes, obviously help yourself get better. But at the same time, it is, it is still a team sport. It's not as much um, at the professional level. But at the end of the day, like I said, like that's the goal is to win a championship. And you can't win a championship by yourself. That's so interesting. So as I mentioned, I was going to ask you a question about Title IX because the anniversary is coming up. Does Title IX have any significance for you? Does it mean anything? Do you care? 
I will say I actually have mixed feelings on Title IX, and that's just because I was a compliance officer in college. Interesting. For a while. Um, I have mixed feelings as well, by the way. Yeah. Title IX, it's definitely had its benefits, but I also think it was kind of a setback. One, because I've actually seen it in opposite ways where schools will get so focused on making sure that women's sports are uplifted that now they're neglecting male sports as well. And then when I say that, I mean, our primary male sports are football, basketball. Everybody seems to forget all the other sports. Those are the ones that suffer. I mean, you've seen baseball teams that get cut because of that. So that's one. But I think one of the biggest setbacks were, you know, with female coaches. You know, as soon as female teams had a paid coaching position, who filled those roles? Men. And unfortunately, women are still in a position where, thanks to, you know, societal expectations, a woman goes on, becomes an assistant coach. She might have an opportunity to be a head coach, but if she decides that she wants a family as well, now that sets her back a little bit. Whereas you got a male coach who comes in, you might have a wife at home to help take care of the family. And there's still that expectation that the woman is always going to do that. And I've talked to a lot of women coaches who they feel they've lost out on opportunities to be a head coach or to gain that experience as an assistant coach to become a head coach. It's taken longer because now they had to step back to take care of their family instead. And I don't think Title IX helped in that aspect because of the fact that now that men are that once men started to see that women's sports like the coaching roles paid they're more likely to now gravitate towards that and you know at the college level majority of ADs are men they're going to hire men you see that at professional baseball as well i mean yes we're getting better at it but we're still in a position where you know you hire people who look like you who think like you and as long as that continues to happen we're not going to have as much change as we want. So that's why, yeah, I definitely have mixed feelings with Title IX. Well, it's interesting. One of the things that I thought about a lot getting ready to talk to you is that it excites me that you're part of a men's sports because, you know, the men's sports have more money. And, you know, it's just exciting to see a woman in that role that's able to take advantage of all that funding, all that, you know, like sort of media presence that's involved with men's sports that's not involved with women's sports or much less so. Yeah. I never really thought of it that way. For me, it was always just, I grew up a baseball fan. I didn't even know what softball was until my mom introduced the game to me when I was 13. It just never occurred to me that there is, it's kind of a female equivalent for baseball. I guess I really shouldn't call it a female equivalent anymore since we do have women who play baseball. And the fact that softball was started by men and for men, not even for women, which I think a lot of people don't realize. And that kind of blows my mind. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got to look up exactly why, but that would certainly explain why softballs are bigger than baseballs, which also I never quite understood. Like I could barely throw a softball anymore. I'm so used to throwing a baseball. I just, I don't know if I could even throw a softball at this point. It just seems so big in my hand. But yeah, like I said, I never really thought about it as, I mean, yes, there, I feel like there are more opportunities, but it was just because I grew up a baseball fan. 
I didn't grow up a softball fan. I don't even really watch softball right now. If it's on, I'll watch it, but it's just not something that was in my household growing up. Well, I didn't mean it that you searched out the the money job, but it's just nice that women are able to, to be involved as well, you know, and take advantage of that. Yeah, it's definitely taken a lot of pushing and, like I said, persistence. Yeah, and what's it like working in, as one of the few, if not the only woman in sort of this man's world? It's interesting. And um, it's gotten easier in a way, I think, just with experience. I mean, this is my 13th year in baseball total, which I think also a lot of people don't realize that I have actually been working in baseball since college and I never really stopped. I've just always found some kind of role that kept me in the game. You know, when I have women ask me that same question, like, what's it like being a woman in a male-dominated industry? My first response is the key when you're first getting started, especially when you haven't really gained that respect or trust yet, is if you want to get things done, you have to make your ideas seem like it's theirs. Wow. And it sucks. But in my opinion, that's actually one of the strengths that women have that men struggle with. Women are less likely to have an ego. They're more likely, and this is coming as a sociology major. My focus as a sociology major was actually gender and women in the workplace. So I have researched this. But women are not only less likely to have an ego, they are more likely to do what is necessary to help the team and help the organization. And if that means stepping back and not taking credit for something so that things get done, we're more likely to do that. While sometimes that can definitely be hurtful just because now we don't really get a chance to promote ourselves. I've found that with the best organizations, people do notice when you're the ones actually making the decisions. And that's what helps. And this is, this is just how I've always worked with every organization I've been at. Just like with working with players, you don't just jump in and start giving instruction when you don't know the players well. And it's the same thing as you know, joining a new team, joining a new organization. I don't just jump in and start giving suggestions. I take the time to learn the organization, learn the staff, learn what our philosophies are before I start making suggestions. And then I might be take more of initiative and you know, take more of that leadership role. So like I said earlier, you know, last year it was more of if I had a suggestion, it was coming to our manager and kind of asking, hey, what do you think about this? Or, you know, this might be a good idea versus this year where it's more, I'll just shoot him a text and say, hey, let's do this on Thursday. And that's because I know, like I've established that trust, the manager trusts that I know what I'm talking about. Our supervisor trusts that I can just jump in and take control of something. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. And it's not something that you can do immediately when you join a new organization. And I think the biggest setback would be a woman jumping in and trying to change everything without truly learning the team and the organization first. And then also, you know, compromises just have to happen, especially as, you know, a coach or anybody who's on the field doing player development or uh, medical strength and conditioning there are going to have to be compromises on both sides. We can't just jump in and expect the entire league to change just because we want a job. That's, that's not how it works. It's a lot easier to invoke change in people 
when they want to change for you, not because you are forcing them to change. So it takes patience and it sucks that it has to be that way, that we can't just jump in and just demand something for us, but that's just not how it works. And it's usually doesn't really work for men either. Not a lot of, not a lot of people like when you just jump in and just try to change the way you've been doing things for years. Sure. Do you think that you bring anything to the team as a woman? I mean, obviously you bring stuff to the team as, as Bianca, but do you bring anything to the team as a woman that you know wasn't there before? I mean, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman. Definitely a different perspective on things, on just you know working with players, particularly like the mental side and off the field. But I think for players, they definitely approach me differently than they do the male coaches. And at first, it's more just out of a cautiousness, making sure they're not saying the wrong thing. Man, the number of times I've had to not reprimand, but get players to stop apologizing for cursing around me. That's funny. I've kept this PG, but um, my language is way worse than theirs is. <laughs> the longer you're in baseball, the worse your language gets. Uh, to the point where I can actually curse in three languages, including English. So, um, the, I mean, yeah, they definitely approach me differently. But once they get to know me, while they still treat me like all the other coaches... I think it's it's kind of like, you know, you, you go to your dad with different things than you go to your mom. And that's kind of how I see it with the players is just like with your parents, you're going to respect both of them. You're pretty much going to treat them the same. But depending on what you might need to talk about, you're going to go to one parent over the other. And that's what I think, not just me as a woman, but any woman on staff. That's what you bring. You're giving players an opportunity now to kind of get two different voices. I mean, I, I've had players ask me if I have kids and I say, yeah, you guys like that. That's how it is for me. It's, you know, either being mom or depending on the age, big sister. And I feel like I, I get certain things out of players that the male coaches wouldn't. And that only just helps us as a staff because now we're getting to work with the players. We're getting to know the players even better and figuring out the best way to help them. And there's sometimes where, yeah, just my coaching style or the way I approach them is gonna be better for some players than others. So at least I think that's what I bring as a woman. I'll admit there are times where it's hard where I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or it's just, that's just how I am, how like people interact with me. Do you have a group of supporters or people that helped you get to where you are now or a group, sort of a network of other women coaches? You know, like, how are you finding support from like-minded people and people that want you to succeed? So I definitely have mentors uh, throughout the years, and majority of them are really just coaches that I've worked with. I keep in touch with all of them, all of the past coaches I've been with. We text, we keep in touch. I actually, this past offseason, I went back to all the schools that I worked at in the past and worked with them again during their preseason or during uh, their fall season, which was awesome because a lot of there's a lot of players who I worked with that I got to work with again, getting to see them progress. And um, part of it's, you know, also just keeping in touch with them, but they've been the biggest support group. I mean, obviously I'm not going to take a job where I don't feel like I'm supported. 
So every job I've been at that I've stayed at, those are the guys that I keep in touch with and they continue to support me now. Even with, you know, professional baseball, you know, my biggest mentor is Tyrone Brooks in the commissioner's office. I first connected with him in grad school and anytime there's a job opportunity, he reached out to me. He made sure that people knew who I was. He gave me advice. I mean, he was the one, um, I've said this in interviews before, when I decided that I wanted to coach full-time instead of being in the front office, he was one of the first people I told. And I was in his office crying because I felt like I was disappointing him for changing my mind because <laughs> he had done so much to try to get me into the front office. But even after that, you know, once he, you know, once we talked about it, he's like, all right, what can I do to help you get a coaching job now? And then even like the professional coaches that I've worked with, I once with the Reds, I still keep in touch with. I text every couple of months to check in on them. I know that if I have any coaching questions, I can reach out and ask. I've got, you know, connections all over the league, just different coaches, especially once I got this job. I had coaches who I'd never talked to reach out to me on social media. You know, not only say congratulations, but say if you ever have any questions or you need anything, please feel free to reach out. And I've been able to talk to quite a few of them and they've been great. And as far as the other women coaches, it was the exact same thing. And some of them I met ahead of time, like before I got this job, just as a coach in college baseball, just kind of asking advice on you know, how to how do I progress? How do I get further? How do I get that full time job? Which I, that's another thing I don't think people realize. Like I've been working in this game for 13 years. This is the first year I've had a full time job in baseball. Like I've always been part time or an intern. So that's another sacrifice you make is this is also only my second full-time job ever. So I lived quite a few years without insurance, which is dangerous as a coach. Yeah, for sure. Um, especially after this offseason. Thank God I had insurance after my accident. But uh, the other women coaches have been amazing. You know, once I got this job, you know, a lot of them texting, reaching out, uh, especially when I got this job, there were only five of us. There's still not a lot, but. Now we're up to 11 and I tried to pay it forward as well. Every time a new woman was hired as a coach, whether it was, you know, text message, email, social media, just reaching out and saying, Hey, congratulations. If you ever have any questions, need anything, let me know. Here's my number. And I got to meet quite a few of them during the off season, but uh, we definitely have our network as well. Uh, just, you know, talking to each other and it's not just professional. I mean, it's, you know, the women who are coaching college baseball, I make sure to keep in touch with them and make sure that they're aware if they ever need anything, you know, shoot me a text. I might not be able to respond immediately, but I'm going to respond eventually. And I've had some who they just need to talk and like vent. They'll call and I'll just let them talk. And sometimes it's really all we need because not nobody else understands what we go through where uh, I mean, we could talk to a man about it, but it's not the same. So that support network has been amazing being able to you know talk to other women who are in the same situation same position as I am have you experienced a lot of sexism or is it just being sort of solo actually I have not experienced any sexism and obviously I can't say that for every woman who has been in this position or been in professional baseball I definitely lucked out with this team like I said, most of the guys, when they first meet me, they're actually overly cautious, making sure they're not saying the wrong thing, making sure they're not uh, 
um, not trying to offend me or to the point where I've actually had to talk to some guys be like, hey, relax, it's fine. <laughs> like, you're good. Once they relax, it's, it's a lot easier. So thankfully, I haven't experienced that. Most of the things that I've had to deal with that might be issues are, again, that like teams being overly cautious or just things that they don't necessarily think about that a woman might need. Um, but they've been very open. I mean, last year, one of the first things that not only my supervisor, but you know, a lot of the higher ups in the front office told me is like, if there's anything you need, like that you think we need to fix, please let us know. Cause this is something we want to continue. Like we want to hire more women in roles like this. So we want to make sure that this is going to work. So they were very open about, you know, letting me give suggestions if there's anything that I thought we needed to fix. I'm impressed with that management. Yeah, no, they've been, like I said, they've been absolutely amazing. That has made this job so much easier, especially coming into the second year now that I'm more comfortable knowing that I'm not going to get like blacklisted if I make a suggestion on uh, how to change something. Like they will actually take it in stride. They truly will listen. I mean, really, there hasn't been a lot that needed to be fixed. It's really just the little things like, you know, obviously figuring out the locker room situation, making sure that, you know, I have access to the players. Like I don't go into the locker room. Um, I haven't needed to. And if I do need a player, I'll just ask one of the male coaches rather than just go in. I know that might be something that changes in the future. Like if I'm a manager, if, when I become a manager, I'm going to have to go in. But by then, you know, getting to work with these players and them knowing me, that makes it a little bit easier. I mean, guys have become a lot more comfortable and that's the goal. Like you don't want to have to come in and change the way things are. I'd never want players to not be comfortable just because I'm there. So like having players walk around in a towel. It's a normal thing. I don't want them being self-conscious because a woman's there. I want them to feel comfortable enough to know, okay, she's just another coach. It's fine. So it's like those kind of things, just getting players comfortable enough to know that I'm in this job for a reason. If I truly cared about all those little things that only become big issues when we make them big issues, I would not be here. Did getting the job with the Red Sox change your life in any unexpected ways? The biggest change besides you know, getting to coach full-time, um, and I'm not just talking about the full-time status, but even just the full-time hours, not having to do another job on the side to make ends meet has been amazing. I said last year that I can't imagine how much I could get done when my only focus is baseball. And I'm starting to see that. And it's crazy. Like I mentioned my schedule. I mentioned all the things I do. I never would have been able to do all of that if I'd been working another job on the side. And that's the kind of things like I know I could bring to the table. Like that when my entire focus is baseball, like that's definitely changed my life. Getting to just do the job I love and only have to focus on that. But then there's the, you know, outside of baseball, just the media attention. That one I was surprised about. I actually did have a, a friend who's now with the Giants who, when I told him I got the job, his first response after congratulating me was saying, uh, he said, you know, this is a big deal, right? And my response was, no, 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 it's not that big a deal. It's okay. And of course, after it exploded, when the news came out, particularly when the Red Sox actually tweeted about it, he immediately texted me back and said, I told you so. <laughs> right. <laughs> and 
honestly, it still blows my mind how much tension I got for that. And for me, it's like, I just, I got a job. Like I haven't even done anything in that job yet. Like give me attention when I become a manager, give me attention when I help a team win a championship and I actually do something for me, just getting the job wasn't enough to warrant that much attention. Like, let me actually do something first. Yeah. I mean, it, it is funny. I mean, I'm certainly excited that you're in the position, but at the same time, I want to be at a place where a person like you getting that job does not make headlines for years. Yeah, exactly. And that is, that is definitely a goal for me. I, I want to get to a point where it's not a big deal. Like if a, if a male coach isn't getting you know, a press conference for getting a minor league job, a woman shouldn't either. Like it shouldn't be that big a deal. It's, it's just another job. There's still, it's a very small percentage of women in this job. But at what point are we going to stop going, great, she's the 15th woman in uh, coaching <laughs> baseball. She's the 16th woman coaching. We're like, okay, great. When, when does it end? The first, I get it. But like, even when I was getting the attention, so many people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're the first black woman or the first one in the Red Sox. And I always had to say, well, I'm also the seventh woman coaching. Like there's six other women who have done this before me. And I, I'm going to be honest, I hated the fact that I was getting attention for being the first black woman. I swear to God, if I end my career and I'm only known as the first black woman to coach professional baseball, that was a terrible career. Like, I want to be known for actually doing something as a coach, not for just getting the job in the first place. So I am definitely looking forward to the point where this is no longer a big deal. I've already, I've already told my supervisor that when I become a manager, there better not be a press conference. I don't even want it announced. I just <laughs> want to kind of show up one day and everybody's like, whoa, okay, no big deal. Just like any other coach. I'm going to bet that doesn't happen. <laughs> oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to make sure it happens. I mean, like this, like doing podcasts and stuff like this is one thing, but I do have a general rule that I don't do interviews during the season. For a reason like i will make certain exceptions but for the most part that's one of the reasons why like once spring training ends you really don't see a lot out of me besides my own social media account and that's because i was hired to coach not hired to talk to the media that's not my job during the off season i do it for the sake of visibility and you know for other women who are interested in this job but my goal is i want to be visible as a coach on the field not as, you know, quotes in a paper. Because then I'm being visible for doing my job. That's how I want, you know, women and girls to be inspired by seeing me actually do my job. Do you have goals for what you want to do this season? Well, now that the championships are back for the rookie team, I want to help us win a championship. <laughs> Good. No, that's that's always my goal. I, I, I just want to be the best coach that I can be. I want to help these guys move up. There's only so much I can control as a coach. Obviously, I can't control who gets called up. All I can do is help them prepare for if and when they're called up. And that's really my job. Like that, that's our job as coaches is not to get them called up. It's to have them be ready. So that way, when they're called up, they stay there. 
I tell guys, like, once they leave the complex, I don't want to see them again until spring training. And they laugh because they know exactly what I mean. Like, if I'm seeing you again, that's not a good thing. That means we didn't do our job. There are going to be times where a guy just doesn't get called up, not because of talent, but just because, of, like, we already have people in those positions. We just don't have room for them. And that's fine. But as long as when they get off that opportunity, they can make the most of it because we help them get ready for it. That's my goal for the season is to you know help guys get ready, help guys just once they get there, they can stay there. And then for the ones who don't get called up and they're still here at the end of August, hopefully we're winning a championship. There's always something to work towards. And then anything after that, I'll worry about after the season. For right now, focus is the season. Well, that's a wonderful place to wrap up. And I'm excited to follow you and excited to follow, you know, like what happens with your team and stuff, especially now that I know that like you were in Cleveland. I did love Cleveland. You did? Oh, man. I yeah, I, I loved it. Hopefully I will be able to go back again this offseason. I already told them I'll either be there in the fall or in the winter during their preseason. But um, I'm pretty involved with the athletic department at this point. It seemed like it was a pivotal point in your career getting getting to work with that baseball team it really was I mean that was my first ignoring the time I was 14 that was my real coach my real first coaching experience and um I mean I've said this too like I chose my grad school based on the baseball team and the opportunities that I would have and the coach there was the only one who was willing to really just let me jump in and help out. And it wasn't necessarily on the field at first, but it was more than what most coaches were willing to give me, especially with my lack of experience. So the fact that I finished out those four years in uniform really made a difference for me because, I mean, I had, I had to work to build that trust. Like I still keep in touch with a lot of the players that I had. Anytime I'm in town, like wherever they are, we'll try to grab lunch um, I still text him like happy birthday, stuff like that. So it was it was a definitely special time for me there. I'm impressed with how well you keep in touch with everybody. It's the little things. And I remember uh, during this offseason, actually, I was telling some of the guys at Carroll when I was working with them how I had just texted about 20 of our minor leaguers just to see how they were doing. Just a quick, hey, just wanted to check in. I definitely keep track of birthdays for all of them and make sure to text them. Actually, I have one in low A right now who I texted happy birthday. But one of the freshmen asked me, why would you need to keep in touch with your players during the offseason? And that just shocked me. I'm like, well, why wouldn't I? Just because I'm not working with them like in person doesn't mean I stop caring about them. And I just remember there's a couple of other guys who were standing around me when the freshman asked and I actually didn't even have to say anything. They were the ones who jumped in and went, because she cares. Like, that's why she keeps in touch with players. I'm like, that's why I keep in touch with the players at Carroll and at Case Western. It's like, once I'm your coach, I'm always your coach, whether you graduate or I leave. Like, I, I, when I say that the players are my kids, I add, you know, 20, 30 kids every year. And they're always my kids. And it's not just baseball. Like I've had players who go off to medical school, law school. One of them in law school, I actually, I, when I found out he wanted to go, I asked all of my classmates for all of their old LSAT books and just gathered a bunch of them and then brought them to practice one day and went, here, let me know if you need anything else. That's like awesome. I, went, I read his 
law school application and his essays and like proofread them and helped him prepare for that. And now he's interested in potentially getting into sports law. And I told him, as soon as you're ready, let me know. I will reach out to some of the general counsels I know. Like that's what a coach is. It's not just helping them on the field. It's what you can do to help them off the field. The majority of these players, even at professional baseball, are never going to make it to the majors. So how are you going to help them after too? Like your job doesn't end just because they don't make it. I got guys who got released last year or retired and I'm still in touch with them. I got one in Tampa who just got a new accounting job and I told like obviously congratulated him. I was really excited. And then I sent him our schedule and said, hey, you better be at a game because I want to see you. It's part of my coaching philosophy is, yeah, you're more than just numbers or player. You're a human being. And that's what I truly care about is making sure that you are in a good place to succeed in anything you want to do, not just baseball, but after baseball. Well, I think what some people who don't understand who have never been in that sort of coach and player relationship is just how important the coach is and how much trust the players do put in their coach and, you know, how much faith they put in the coach. It's certainly nerve wracking. It actually makes it, uh, it makes the job harder because now you also don't want to let them down. Like you get scared of saying the wrong thing or giving them the wrong information. And that's one of the reasons why I emphasize being honest with them. If I come up with a brand new drill, I'll let them know. There are times where I'll joke around and say, hey, I might screw this up completely, but we're going to try this out. And they react to that. Like they respond to that. It's a lot easier than, I mean, the moment that you don't feel like you have to be perfect, that's when they relax because now they feel like they don't have to be perfect. They are allowed to fail. And baseball is such a game of failure. I mean, if you fail seven out of 10 times, you're an all-star. But what really sets you apart is how you responded to those seven out of 10 times, not the three out of 10 that you succeeded. So they have to feel comfortable enough to fail and know that you're not going to be bragging on them the entire time. Like you're going to help them get better. There's a lot that goes into it that, yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize. And that's one of the reasons why it could be a very stressful job. Your coach, your parent, your sibling, your psychiatrist, like you're, you're a lot when you're working with players. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending the time, especially just before your season. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And that is our show for this week. Thank you to Bianca for making time in her packed schedule. I feel so honored that she was willing to be on the podcast right at the beginning of baseball season. Be sure to follow her on social you can find all that in the show notes at hearhersports.com. Following female athletes does have a huge impact, and a great place to start is with all my guests on Hear Her Sports. A big, big thank you to Erica for inspiring and encouraging me to reach out to Bianca. Erica is a Patreon patron and now a friend, and I so appreciate all of that. Keep tuning in to every episode of Hear Her Sports. You being here, enjoying the conversation, and spreading the word about incredible women on the show make everything I'm doing absolutely worthwhile. There are many ways to keep the conversation going. Hear Her Sports is on social with the handle Hear Her Sports. You can send me an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. I always love hearing from you and will respond. And remember to sign up for the Hear Her Sports newsletter. And until next time, bye-bye.
My schedule is a nightmare. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.